Welcome to Planttopia. I'm your host, David Godori, and I'm a plant pathologist at Cornell University. Any listeners who have never met a real live plant pathologist can be forgiven. We are a very low visibility, but very high impact profession. We protect the world's food supply from disease-causing fungi, bacteria, viruses, and nematodes, all of which want to eat your lunch. This time on Planttopia. There were farmer suicides because of the economic ruin that the introduction of this new genotype of Phytophthora infestans caused. There has been a really intense human suffering as a result of it. If you thought that human misery due to plant diseases was only from our distant past, that our technology has placed us beyond the reach of plague and famine, then you have not kept up to date on a plant pathogen named Phytophthora infestans. It's the cause of the Irish potato famine, which actually killed um, at least a million people and caused a million and a half to two million people to emigrate that country. The next year, spring 1995, uh, he was so severely affected that he had to declare bankruptcy. And then the same farmer uh, actually died a couple years later, and I always thought that his death was hastened by the stress of losing his um, farm, and the reason for he lost his farm was uh, late blight. This is a very um, ingenious pathogen, and that's one of the reasons that it continues to be a problem. There remain plant pathogens that are remarkably adaptable and still threaten agricultural systems of the most technologically advanced countries in the world. In today's episode of Plantopia, we'll meet the one whose name, translated from Latin, is the Terrible Plant Destroyer. Hello, my name is Nina Zydak, and I am the Director of Seed Potato Certification at Montana State University in Bozeman, Montana. Hi, my name is Bill Fry. I'm a retired plant pathologist at Cornell University. A lot of what we're going to talk about today has to do with a a plant pathogen called Phytophthora infestans. It, It sounds like it was named by Sylvester the cat. If you ever saw it spelled, it's P H Y T O P H T H O R A for Phytophthora. Translated from Latin, it means terrible plant destroyer. What has this fungus done to earn this awful name? That terrible plant destroyer, uh, late blight, is probably one of the most important important diseases historically um, in the world. And I'm talking about that both in terms of a plant pathogen and also a pathogen that actually causes a distinct amount of human suffering. Um, One of the interesting things about this pathogen right now, we're very concerned about where pathogens originate. Um, This particular pathogen actually originated in the Americas, and it was first described um, on the East Coast in the early 1840s, and from there it spread to Europe um, on a load of seed potatoes that was going to Belgium and ended up um, causing this terrible disease all throughout Europe. And it was especially vicious in Ireland and was the cause of the Irish potato famine, which actually killed um, at least a million people and caused a million and a half to two million people to emigrate that country. So this is a disease that attacks potatoes. Potatoes are 
don't have that long of a history compared to the history of civilizations. When did they become such a staple food crop, and where did they come from? So, uh, potatoes actually originated in the South Andes. Um, specifically, when we think of the origin of potatoes, we think of Peru. And um, with the Spanish explorers, they actually discovered potatoes and brought them back to Europe in those very early days of the um, colonization of the different parts of the world um, by the Europeans. And from there, they became uh, inordinately important in the in the diets of certain parts of the population, uh, to the point where, when a blight hits them, uh, in this case late blight, uh, the impact of that on the on that civilization on that population is greatly magnified by the importance of potatoes in their diet. Yes, and in Ireland um, in particular, they were very, very reliant on potatoes as one of the primary food sources for their diet. And an interesting thing about Ireland, and one of the things that made them um, probably the most susceptible to uh this particular potato disease is that they really only grew one type of potato and it was called the Irish lumper. And the Irish lumper just happened to be extremely susceptible to the late white pathogen Phytophthora. And also it was like a perfect storm because um, they were growing this one type of very, very susceptible potato. And then they had three years of very, very wet, cool conditions, which were very optimal for the late blight pathogen to proliferate and cause disease. And one of the big problems with Phytophthora is that, yes, it is a blight of the foliage and it'll cause the plants almost to look like they've been um, hit with a weed burner. Um, they almost look as if they're melting. But as they're going through that process, they're producing these little things that are like seeds called spores, and those spores can actually wash down into the soil and infect the tubers. And once the tubers become infected, they might look healthy when you first dig them out of the ground, but when you put them into storage, over time they will rot. So, um, at the beginning of the epidemic, um, the Irish people had put their tape their potatoes into storage and didn't know that anything was necessarily wrong. But as they began to take them out of storage, there were significant amount of rot. And so a lot of their food supply was, was lost immediately. And that infection of the potato seed supply continues to be a problem uh, to this day. Yes, um, absolutely. So in my job, I'm involved in what we call seed potato certification. And this type of a program is important because seed potatoes are different than the kind of potatoes that you just find in the grocery store or are processed into your uh, french fries or that type of thing. A seed potato is actually unique because it needs to be produced um, with a very, very strict tolerance for disease. So we actually start our seed potato production with plantlets that are grown in vitro or in a very sterile environment. And then as they go out into the field, they, and over multiple generations, they're tested to make sure that they don't have any diseases that will cause problems for um, subsequent crops. And late blight is one of the diseases that's a real problem because um, when the foliage is infected, if those spores go down to the potatoes, um, 
it will cause disease in that potato, which will ultimately be a seed for the next crop. So in a disease like late blight, if you have an infected tuber and you plant it into the field the next year, it will produce a plant with late blight. And then if you get the tight, right type of conditions, cool, wet for late blight and get wind and splashing rain and that type of thing, then yeah, that will be the source of inoculum or the new source for the disease that could be spread uh, to neighboring potato fields. So the, the statistics surrounding this disease with respect to uh, global famines are, are appalling. The Irish potato famine in the 1840s to 1850s uh, led to the starvation of uh, over a million people, uh, widespread depopulation of Ireland. But to put that in perspective, as if those statistics are not horrifying enough, That occurred in a country of 8 million people. So we have one in five people in Ireland either dying or fleeing this disease, and in large part coming to uh, North America and the United States. Uh, We eventually elect one of their grandchildren as as president, that was Kennedy. Uh, But this seems like a disease that just won't give up. It continues to be a problem uh, to this day. Yes, and... This is a very um, ingenious pathogen, and that's one of the reasons that it continues to be a problem. So I talked about a little bit ago about how the particular variety of potato that they were raising in Ireland was extremely susceptible. Um, There's some natural differences in potato in terms of their susceptibility, and I wouldn't say resistance, but maybe um, some varieties that are a little bit less susceptible. Um, But Over time, um, plant breeders have actually worked to breed resistance into potato by crossing our domestic potato with wild potato relatives that are not um, susceptible to the late blight pathogen. And this is a technique that can be very, very good at stopping disease. But the thing that can happen is that if you have a really... uh, flexible uh, plant pathogen, they can overcome this resistance. And that is something that has happened um, many times over the years. Uh, Plant breeders have developed new potato varieties only to be overcome by by the loss of resistance in the potato and by the development of a new strain of the late blight that can still cause disease. As a graduate student, um, I did a little bit of work on a late blight forecasting system. And uh, with the potato growers I was working with, uh, it seemed from my perspective that the disease was easy to control. It was easy to control because they sprayed more than once a week uh, with a very broad spectrum compound. The the favorite one was called Mancozeb. broad-spectrum fungicide. So the disease was controlled, but only through intensive fungicide use. How has that situation changed today? Because we know a lot about this fungus, we can actually use what we know about the biology and epidemiology of the fungus to forecast um, when and where you might get infections in the field. So Phytophthora is probably one of the most um, studied organisms um, 
in the world, um, starting from the 1940s when it was first discovered up through now. And a lot has been learned about what it takes um, for Phytophthora to actually infect a leaf. And in order for that to happen, you have to have sustained leaf wetness um, for a certain period over two days. And you also need to have high relative humidities and pretty moderate temperatures. Um, optimal temperatures are going to be in the 50 to 80 degree mark. Um, anything over that, over 80 degrees, it'll actually slow the fungus down and at real high temperatures can actually kill the fungus. So by being able to place um, weather stations in the field that actually monitor temperature, relative humidity, leaf wetness, and rainfall events, uh, we can actually predict whether or not an infection um, can take place. And one of the very important things to think about, too, is that you do need to have inoculum um, in order for the infection to take place. So one of the things that is also really important with disease forecasting is mapping uh, where the fungus might occur at different times during the growing season. So there's actually a national effort out of Cornell University to map where late blight outbreaks happen. And then people in the field can actually use that um, information to know like what the risk is of having late blight in the area. And then using the information from the weather stations, determining if they really do need to put a preventative um, spray out to control the disease. How much has the uh, movement of new strains into new geographic areas played into the, the present difficulties in controlling late blight? Oh, uh, the the development of new strains is probably one of the um, biggest factors that makes this disease so hard to control. Um, in most cases, the fungus just spreads by spores, which we call like vegetative spores. They're not the result of any sexual recombination. So there's not a huge amount of um, genetic change that happens, but um, there are two different mating types of this fungus. So it's actually kind of like a male and a female. And if you have both of them present, you can get genetic recombination. And with that genetic recombination, you can get the development of even more aggressive strains. Um, and this has become more problematic in North America. Um, for many, many years, we just had one of the mating types of the fungus, um, but some the second mating type, um, which was originally just in Mexico, has moved farther north. And so this results in more uh, more infectious, more aggressive strains that are capable of hitting a wider variety of the different potato cultivars. Plantopia is brought to you by the American Phytopathological Society, or APS, to honor the United Nations celebration of 2020 as the International Year of Plant Health. Healthy plants can help us solve world hunger, stabilize the world's climate, protect our forests, and add beauty to our lives. Conviron is the world leader in controlled environment systems for plant science research. Convirin's reach-in plant growth chambers, walk-in rooms, and Argus control systems provide precise, uniform, and repeatable control of temperature, light, humidity, CO2, and other environmental conditions. Applications include plant growth, entomology, tissue culture, germination, and other research where tight environmental controls are required. 
Learn more at Conviron.com or contact us at info at Conviron.com. Now, back to the show. Plant pathology is a fairly compact and almost under-the-radar profession. Uh, not many people have actually met a real plant pathologist. but um, So they might not be familiar with the concept that fungi actually have male and female strains, opposite mating types. Now, with Phytophthora, there's the, the opposite mating types have been known of for a long time, but one of the mating types was not found in the continental United States for many, many years. And then it was here. Uh, why was it absent for so long, and then how did it get here? That, that's a really interesting question, and um, there's a lot to answering that. Um, you're right, there are two mating types of Phytophthora infestans. The A1 mating type is the type that was distributed uh, first in the United States and then in Europe and then into the rest of the world in the mid-19th century. That, um, so actually until not too long ago, there was only the A1 mating type distributed throughout the world. and. Um, scientists wondered if there actually was a different mating type. And then in the early 1950s, a remarkable discovery was made by John Niederhauser and a group of Mexican scientists, also uh, men and Gallagher at uh, West Virginia University. And they discovered the A2 mating type in the highlands of central Mexico. Uh, there was both A1. There were both A1 and A2 mating types in the population of Central Mexico, and so this was just a huge story because it meant that there actually was uh, a living example, or there were living examples of A2 mating types of Phytophthora infestans. They were in Central Mexico. Now, the highlands of Central Mexico are not. Uh, potato producing areas and they weren't in the 1950s and because um, they were not producing potatoes and because the sporangia of Phytophthora infestans do not survive for terribly long periods of time there was there was no ready vehicle to get the A2 mating type out of the highlands of central Mexico into any place else in the world so it was it resided there, and we think it's been there for eons. Um, Central Mexico is the logical center of origin of Phytophthora infestans, and it has a very diverse population. It's a very different population than any other population of Phytophthora infestans from any place else in the world. Um, but so, in the highlands of Central Mexico, both mating types existed. They existed on wild species of selenum species. Those uh, selenum is a genus for um, potatoes um, in the highlands and the mountains. So I think oh, the answer to your question is that there was really not a way for the A2 mating type to do, to get out of central Mexico into the rest of the world. Currently, Phytophthora infestans moves around the world in infected tubers. We don't import 
potato tubers from Mexico because of the late blight problem. But we do import tomato fruits from Mexico. And tomatoes are produced in locations where late blight is a problem. And in those in Mexico, and in those locations, there are there can be both A1 and A2 mating types. And uh, it seems very likely that um, the introduction of these more aggressive strains of Phytophthora infestans in the 1980s and 1990s into the United States from Mexico came on tomato fruits. Have there been instances where tomatoes uh, have actually served as the sources of inoculum for uh, late blight epidemics on potato in a more general sense? Um, th- th- yes, there there have been cases where tomatoes have been the uh, source of inoculum. Uh, a spectacular example, spectacular at least in my experience, was the tomato late blight pandemic and the eastern part of the United States in 2009. And this was just an amazing event. Um, In late June in 2009, Meg McGrath, a plant pathologist on Long Island, reported the occurrence of late blight uh, on Long Island. And that's not too unusual because uh, Long Island has a warmer climate Uh, an earlier planting season, earlier season than does upstate New York. So late blight also can appear there um, sooner than it does upstate. So so she reported on June 23rd, 2009, that late blight was present in Long Island. The next day, my colleague, Keith Perry, showed me a plant, a transplant, a tomato transplant, um, that he had just bought. And this is in my office at Cornell. And this transplant was absolutely blasted with late blight, uh, lesions all over it. And he asked me, he said, he said, Bill, what do you think? And I said, wow, that's really something. Um, and it turned out that this transplant he had bought at one of the local box stores Um, on that day, June 24th. And it turned out that this was not an unusual case, that the transplants in in that location, that particular box store, were all just blasted with late blight. Um, Employees in box stores probably don't know what late blight looks like, even if they know what tomatoes do. But these um, transplants were bought by home gardeners also who didn't know what late blight was. These home gardeners then planted um, these uh, tomato transplants in their gardens. And the pathogen that caused those lesions on on those plants uh, was then distributed all around, actually all around upstate New York, and not just upstate New York, throughout the Northeast, because the supplier of those transplants in the box store sold not only to the box stores in Ithaca, New York, but also to box stores in Geneva, New York, and all in Rochester, in Syracuse, in Portland, Maine. So there were um, infected tomatoes planted throughout the Northeast very, very quickly 
in late June 2009. And those transplants served, um, provided an oculum that infected local potato plants as well. So that was a case in which tomatoes were a major source of inoculum. The pathogen was distributed throughout the east and northeast, uh, very widespread in a very short period of time because it was uh, transported in trucks to garden centers. The um, plants were bought in garden center centers by home gardeners who took them home and planted them. The pathogen reproduced on those plants in in their gardens and this organism can be dispersed aerially for you know one or two miles and so that was did a wonderfully effective job of getting this pathogen throughout the northeast um, in a very short period of time late blight seems to be a disease that just won't give up it just keeps coming back at us. Where do you see us with respect to controlling this disease, say, five to ten years down the road? What are the, the breakthroughs that we hope are going to change the situation? Historically, one of the um, best methods to combat late blight has been the development of resistant varieties. But as I mentioned before, this can be very problematic because this pathogen is so ingenious, it will actually um, change over time and break down um, the genetic resistance of, of the variety. So plant breeders are continually having to look for new sources of genes in wild plants and introducing them into potato. And in many situations, they just aren't that durable. But with the advent of genetic engineering and new molecular methods, uh, we can develop varieties that have uh, more stable genetic resistance and ultimately um, could really help uh, control the late blight situation. Bill, you've been a plant pathologist for a while. And you've and 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 <laughs> late and, and late blight has been very very good to you. I mean, how do you feel about this pathogen? I mean, having spent a career working on it, I, I know I feel conflicted working on apple scab or grape powdery mildew. Uh, for for thirty years, it's provided me with a fascinating existence, and yet all I've done is try to kill it. Yeah, I have. That, that's a very. My answer to your question is very complex. Um, I have to say that when I first started working on late blight, it was mainly an academic exercise. I was um, a lot had been known and it was uh, very well studied, and one could do interesting uh, experiments in epidemiology with late blight disease, and also in terms of management. So. Um, you know, I found it very interesting to work with, and it is a fascinating disease. Uh, you can do experiments in the field that um, are just, uh, and um, you can see the devastation caused by a by a plant pathogen in small plots, and that's a really amazing thing to observe. Um, but things changed for me uh, in the 1990s when. The, there was this population change 
of there are different genotypes of phytophthora infestans introduced into the United States. And what changed was that this pathogen, which you said was fairly well managed uh, a long time ago by mancozeb and other fungicides, all of a sudden wasn't. Uh, when it first hit in 1994 in the, in the, the eastern part of the U.S., I visited uh, some farms in which the growers had essentially lost their crops. Um, one grower uh, in upstate New York uh, had been a very successful uh, farmer. He had a small uh, potato processing plant as well as growing several hundred acres of potatoes. Um, he lost his crop. He told me that he had a million dollars of losses. And then um, in the spring of the next year, spring 1995, uh, he was so severely affected that he had to declare bankruptcy. And then the same farmer uh, actually died a couple years later. And I always thought that his death was hastened by the stress of losing his um, farm. And the reason for he lost his farm was uh, late blight. So that kind of human tragedy changed my mind. Um, and it changed my uh, reaction to this organism. It, um, it's just remarkable how devastating it can be when um, the grower doesn't know what it is that he or she is dealing with. It may have, uh, if uh, migration to me, uh, bringing new strains of this organism to other locations, has been um, just an amazing um, development in the history of late blight. Um, because the people who deal with late blight in the recipient location for the new genotypes of P. infestans don't know what to expect. They don't know what to do. What used to work no longer does. And unfortunately, th um, it can create really huge human tragedy. Um, obviously, migration introduced Phytophthora infestans to Europe in the mid-19th century. That led to the Irish potato famine, and that was just a horrible event. The, the introduction of 13A2 into eastern India um, in 2014 caused a terrible pan uh, epidemic. And again, farmers uh, didn't know what to do. Uh, there were farmer suicides because of the economic ruin that the introduction of this new genotype of Phytophthora infestans caused. And th they didn't know what to do. So migration has um, introduced foreign strains of P. infestans into new locations. Um, it has caused terrible damage to potato crops there or tomato crops. And there has been in really intense human suffering as a result of it. So, since 1994, when I saw this human suffering that was caused by Phytophthora infestans, um, late blight became no longer just 
an academic exercise for me. It became a real um, human issue. Um, and, and I realized that um, this pathogen causes real devastation with really significant human consequences uh, and is to be, tr be treated with just a whole lot of respect. For more information about the International Year of Plant Health, visit us at plantopiapodcast.org. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by John Bryce. Thanks also to Mark Gleason, Jim Bradeen, Laura Isles, and Roshni Karate. I'm your host, David Godori, and you've been listening to Plantopia. Plantopia.